This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So now it's my tremendous honor to introduce uh, our featured speakers for this keynote, uh, Professor Aziz Rana from Cornell Law School and Professor Vasuki Nasia from NYU. Uh, Professor Rana is going to offer the keynote, and he's truly among the premier authorities on constitutional Constitutional law and how it interacts with race, colonialism, power, and freedom. And to have the two of them talking about this together, I think you're in for a real treat. Um, Professor Rana's had a 2010 book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, that quickly became a touchstone in the areas of law and government that are the focus of this symposium. I know he has a forthcoming book as well. Uh, on the rise of the Constitution, looking at, among other things, how support of the U.S. Constitution solidified in the mid-20th century um, and the interactions with what was happening on the world stage um, as that was happening. He's a frequent media commentator on these issues and many more, and we're just delighted to have him here with us today. I also have learned that his mother and her partner are here with us as well, so let's thank them for helping to... Uh, helping to, uh, to to raise and support such an excellent scholar and human, right? Um, I, I say this as a mother, right? Um, uh, but it's really terrific to have Aziz back in L.A., and it's great to, great to see you. Before joining the faculty uh, at Cornell, uh, Professor Rana served as the Oscar M. Rubhausen Fellow-in-Law at Yale, and he holds both a bachelor's degree and a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard and a J.D. from the Yale Law School. Uh, Professor Nasia, who will offer commentary after the keynote, has also published widely on the history and politics of human rights, on international criminal law, on feminism, and on colonial legal history. Her current scholarship focuses focuses on the critical issue of reparations. In addition to teaching at NYU, she's a member of Harvard Law School's Institute for Global Law and Policy, and she earned her bachelor's degree in philosophy and government from Cornell, and her JD and her SJD from Harvard Law School. So thanks to both of them for traveling to LA to be part of this conversation. Uh, I think you really are in for a big treat. Uh, Aziz has told me that this topic is going to be broadly speaking on um, American imperial unraveling. And so we look forward uh, to hearing what you have to say. Let's give, Aziz, let's give both of them a very warm welcome. Please. All right. Um, so first, I'd also like to say thank you to Dean Nukin for that incredibly generous introduction to uh, Tendai and Asla for bringing us all together and all of their hard organizing work and intellectual labor with, uh, with this conference, um, to Morris and Al- Alvina for all of their work, as well as, again, all of the staff and students that have been involved in, in making sure that today comes off. And then last but not least, thank you to Vasuki for um, providing comments on my talk. Um, this is a particular challenge because she has no paper uh, from which to draw from. So I, I appreciate um, your, your willingness to, to indulge me nonetheless. So uh, the title uh, of my comments, uh, America's Imperial Unraveling, draws from 
uh, piece that Usla and I wrote together. And um, in a way, this is sort of prompted by many of the themes that we've been working on um, collaboratively for, for many years. And so uh, much of this is indebted to her, as they say, all of the, the errors uh, you, can, you, <laughs> you can direct my way. Um, <clears throat> to me, in order to understand the relationship between race and empire in transnational legal discourse, you have to be able to ground it in an account of the present. And so a lot of what I'm going to try to work through is just making sense of the present moment in the international legal order. And as a background argument, I'm going to contend that we can't make sense of this present moment and what possibilities might be available, um, you know, let's say going forward into the future, without drawing both explicitly and implicitly from critical race theory, CRT, and from TWAIL. There are really two parallel developments that we see right now. The first has to do with, let's say, domestic U.S. law. There's been a classic account of the meaning of the American uh, legal project, and that's an argument that says... From the founding, the U.S. has always been committed to principles of freedom and equality, that the U.S. is exceptional. It's exceptional because, unlike Europe, it's the place where feudalism did not take hold. To the extent that the U.S. has had problems of native expropriation or African enslavement, uh, these are really marginal to the basic identity of the country. We can think of the U.S. as incompletely liberal that's on a path to fulfilling its essential project. And right now, in the era of Trump, in the context of the rise of white nationalism, the return of a virulent and explicit form of white nationalism, against the backdrop of institutional paralysis, uh, constitutional crisis, or rot, that's the relevant discussion that you have constitutional scholars in the U.S. engaging with, it's very difficult for the classic mythos about the American domestic order to be defended. And this is a difficulty that experienced not just by those that have previously been on the radical edges, but even within the mainstream elements of popular discussion, political action, and legal scholarship. So that the U.S. is facing, let's say, the limits of its own national mythology. That's one development that we're seeing. There's a second parallel development, and we can think of this as occurring at the global level, which is there was a similar story about international law and the international order, especially post-45. So that the world is a product of formally equal states, regardless of whether or not they've been previous colonizers or colonized, and that international law established a framework for shared peace and prosperity grounded in multilateral institutions that imposed constraint on all and lifted all boats. It was also bound to an account of how this sort of progressive notion of international law operates. It moves from the center, the global center, especially in the U.S. and in Europe, to what was seen as the periphery. The problems tend to be problems that exist at the periphery, but the progressive spread of international law, international legal protections, is one in which everyone eventually will be governed through this shared framework. That, too, today is facing the limits of its own mythology. And it's very hard to sustain those arguments in a context where, again, you see the return 
of a rampant white nationalism in Europe. You see the breakdown of multilateral institutions as a meaningful way of organizing international life. And you see the growing use of preventive war, uh, unilateralism, uh, and various forms of explicit coercion in violation of the traditional notions of constraint. And as just one recent example that highlights the ways in which these two things are bound, we can think at the beginning of this month of the assassination of Soleimani and the near war that the U.S. plunged the world into vis-a-vis Iran as an example, where you have assassination, preemptive war, unilateralism, and all racialized in in ways that are consistent with discussions from the last panel around threats that presumably come from Muslim communities that are understood to be outsiders. Now, using an American example is noteworthy because, in a way, what stands at the center of these two parallel developments is a breakdown a breakdown in the framework of what's defined American power and indeed American national self-conception that links the domestic and the international since at least World War II. And so what I'm going to try to do for the rest of my time is to just work through how this breakdown occurred. And as part of it, again, what I'm going to argue implicitly is that the traditional mechanisms of understanding U.S. constitutional law on the one hand, which CRT has been in long, um, long-term kind of dialogue and contestation with, and international law, which Twail has been sort of in a conversation, contestation with the traditional forms of public international law, do not have the internal capacity to make sense of this. And in a way, even if not all of the purveyors of traditional modes of constitutional law and public international law are willing to accept this, there is an analytical crisis that's taking place in the heart of the traditional disciplines that have defined both constitutional law and public international law. So I'm going to work through this through four parts. The first is going to be, let's say, the most significant um, part of my own uh, conversation. And that's, I'm going to just sort of assess the two basic modes of U.S. imperial power, what I'm going to describe as settler imperial, settler empire, and uh, American uh, global primacy. And I'm going to argue in the process that we can only understand these two by uh, putting at the center of our discussion CRT and TWAIL. And also that one cannot separate the two, that the two are deeply and intricately interconnected with one another so it's not just that the U.S. was a settler empire first and then a, a, a global hegemonic power afterwards, but we can only understand both as joined conceptually together. Then I'm going to turn to what law has meant especially for the project of American global primacy. And then the third element will be, well, what's the breakdown of what we can call the post-World War II order, notions of American power? And I'll end with some quick reflections on what that means for transnational solidarity and the project and pitfalls of transnational solidarity today. Okay, so let me start with the classic imperial frames of American life, beginning with settler empire. So this is the central thesis of my first book. I apologize for those of you that this is familiar and also for people that in the audience have had to listen to me say this previously, so I'll try to be quick. From the 17th to the 19th century, to the end of the 19th century, the defining way of organizing American legal and political life was through what I call settler empire, in which the U.S. was really a project not unlike various other settler siblings globally, especially the French in Algeria, 
the British, English in Australia, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand. And that what defined this settler project was a basic legal and political distinction between the rights that were afforded to colonists and their descendants and those that were provided to non-settlers. And there are two basic categories of non-settlers in the U.S., though there's a great deal of variety that we might be able to get into. Um, For my purposes, we can think of native peoples whose land was expropriated as the basis for settlement and enslaved African workers and their descendants whose coerced labor was essential for the reproduction of material wealth and prosperity. This project of settler empire had four kind of key components in the U.S. The first was... a a primary focus on property and property owning. So what settlers brought from England was a radicalized account of the Republican tradition that emphasized economic independence, control over land as key to the conditions of being free. And so that emphasized the importance of owning property and having property as a basis for a broadly equal distribution of material resources, social mobility, among included insiders. Two... This meant that territorial expansion was also central, that you needed expropriated native land in order to be able to ensure the terms of broad-ranging social mobility, relative economic equality, and independence for insiders. It also meant, and I'm going to get into this in just a bit, that American borders were not fixed in advance by anything that amounted to, you know, constrained uh, legal frameworks. American borders were provisional. So the idea of the continental U.S. is a contingent fact of the direction of American empire. We could have imagined different other formulations, invasions of Canada that occurred, ideas of a Caribbean basin, etc. Three, freedom was not universal. The idea was that for some to enjoy the benefits of economic independence and free citizenship, you had to have others that engaged in hard and degraded forms of work, in particular enslaved African workers. And then, once consigned to those forms of work, that position gets racialized. So it's precisely because you're African that justifies that that sort of dependent economic status. And then four, that settlement requires more than just those that initially came from England that you actually have to have a growing and dynamic population, and that that population then produces striking practices of migration openness for Europeans that are included as ethno-racial insiders. And so you have policies that would be surprising today, like voting rights even for non-citizens that happen to be of European descent, um, access to Western land grants for non-citizens that are of European descent. In other words... The border is essentially a port of entry dependent on your racial identity. Okay. With that, there are two really significant implications of this analysis that, in my view, this is maybe I'll do a little bit of intellectual biography, are drawn from CRT and from 12. So the first implication is that the idea of the U.S. as a break from the European imperial imagination is fundamentally false. That we can actually only understand the terms of legal and political life and the ways in which inclusion and exclusion are stitched together in the U.S. by recognizing the extent to which the U.S. is part of a colonial project. 
Um, Now, for me personally, when I was starting to think through this argument, when I was working on the dissertation in the book, um, there was a book that had just come out. And our, uh, you know, one of our panelists in abstention, Daryl Lee, we were friends. He was like, you know, you're grasping at these kinds of arguments. There's this book by Tony Anki. It's called Imperialism, Sovereignty, and the Making of International Law. You might consider reading it. And indeed, reading that book was eye-opening. And it was eye-opening precisely because of the way in which, rather than a break from Europe, the classic presentation of the American Revolution, it allowed me to understand how actually the foundation of the American Republic was precisely through the law of nations that had been organized among European empires. So going back to the idea of the U.S. borders as provisional. Where does U.S. sovereignty come from? U.S. sovereignty comes from a claim about the so-called doctrine of discovery, which asserts uh, European Westphalian state sovereignty and rejects indigenous sovereignty over the land that native peoples um, possess. And it's also grounded in the idea that if, let's say, England or France were to attack indigenous peoples within the terms of the American landmass, that is not an attack on indigenous sovereignty. That is an attack on U.S. sovereignty as the only relevant political power. So that the entire frame, the sort of the precondition for American statecraft is a continuation of an imperial project drawn from Europe. Two, whiteness within this context becomes essential to social cohesion in the U.S., So there's this basic question about, well, if the U.S. is a particular kind of colonial project tied to practices of European empire, how is it that that gets racialized as whiteness? And there was a second piece that was really essential for me in thinking through this, and that was Cheryl Harris's uh, whiteness as property, which is, well, it's not self-evident that whiteness would be the basis for making the distinctions between insiders and outsiders. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, whiteness itself has a specific status that provides distributions of political, legal, and economic rights, and that is grounded in a deep sense in one's capacity to own and transfer wealth. How is it that that happens? And the argument that I try to make in the book is that we can only understand the centrality of whiteness as social cohesion by front-loading the question of settlement, recognizing how the basic divide from the 17th to the 19th century is not citizen versus non-citizen. You could be African-American and be a a citizen if you weren't enslaved, but denied all of the basic rights that go hand-in-hand with full membership. The basic divide is between settler and non-settler. And what that ends up meaning, relatedly, is that over time... The Republic requires people beyond the initial folks that are coming. And so that means that you can't organize life on a presumption that the only insiders are Anglo-Protestant from uh, from England, that you're going to need new European migrants, perhaps Catholic migrants from places like Ireland and Germany. And that expands the terms of who necessarily gets included. And as the terms get expanded, so this is a way in which whiteness is an inclusionary framework, the focus moves from Anglo-Protestantism and an exclusive focus on one's spiritual politics to an argument about white solidarity and the kind of ethno-racial grounds of, of membership. 
Uh, and that, of course, goes hand in hand with the transformation of, of blackness into the justification in evolutionary and increasingly scientific terms behind one's not only exclusion but subordinated status at work. And it leads to a second kind of really key point about the American imagination during this period, which is the focus on demography. In other words, what the U.S. is is a particular kind of imperial project that's claiming land while settling bodies and populations. It's not about holding distant colonial dependencies. And that's important because key to this is the idea that you actually have to replace one set, one population, so native peoples, with white bodies and to construct a white republic. And we're going to see how this notion of demography is essential to the, the conditions of having a free republic become really key going forward. All right. How does this start to collapse? Now, there's a crisis in settler ideology in the late 19th, early 20th century that's a product of the closing of the frontier that has to do with industrialization, the ways in which industrialization generate class conflict, that has to do with who's coming from abroad, especially from Europe, as migrants, and how that destabilizes definitions of whiteness. Can you actually include Jewish people or Southern Europeans as white? And one of the responses to all of these forms of destabilization is to say, well, we need to now double down on the basic driving element of the American kind of imperial imagination, which is expansion, territorial control. And it produces a move by a new generation of imperialists. We can think of Teddy Roosevelt, um, uh, you know, Elihu Root, uh, others at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, to actually go out and claim colonies abroad as a way of solving like a basic crisis that's taking place domestically. But what's interesting is that this moment occurs <clears throat> at just the period where not only has the colonial scramble for land among European empires already more or less concluded, but that you start to see the first significant generation of non-white political assertiveness. And that's what the U.S. finds itself hitting up against in places like the Philippines, in Puerto Rico, elsewhere, in the early part of the 20th century. And in a way, there's a kind of premonition already that's circulating about the extent to which explicit white solidarity is going to be able to sustain itself at the international level. So there's a very well-known book that um, uh, Reynolds and Lake in their work have, have sort of focused on. This is a book by Charles Pearson from 1893 called National Life and Character, a Forecast. And what Pearson's an Australian journalist, and he says, we're going to begin to see a world, this is an interesting inverse of Du Bois' discussion of the color line, where it'll be impossible simply to exclude non-white persons from the global stage. And that the era of explicit white dominance may well be coming to an end. In this way, the U.S., and South Africa, all understood as white men's country and Australia, are kind of outliers. They're white outposts in a non-white world that they might no longer be able to control. Um, as just an anecdote about this, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, thinks this is a totally fascinating book. It has its moment in the sun at the end of the, the 19th century. In 1893, he writes a letter to his various friends about, well, you know, what are the books that you should read? Um, he recommends uh, reading Mahan's work on sea power, uh, Das Kapital by Marx, so uh, Marx has made it across the Atlantic. Um, 
uh, Emma by Jane Austen, because you need some literature, and uh, Pearson's National Life and Character, A Forecast. This ends up, over the next two to three decades, working its way through American policymaking elites, particularly in the context of um, U.S. practices in places like the, the Philippines or in, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, where one of the things that occurs in the Philippines is just to maintain control over territory uh, in the context of an intense anti-colonial guerrilla war, the U.S. administrators have to hand over power. They have to like, give over power. And they have to give over power to indigenous elites. And that raises a basic question, which is, if the condition of being able to control the territory is giving up power to the people you're supposed to be able to control, how can you justify that? And the argument becomes one that's drawn, <clears throat> really, from the Civil War and, and uh, uh, Reconstruction history, which is to say, well, classic modes of imperialism, just straight-up extraction, is not, in fact, what defines American global power. That the U.S. instead is defined by a principle of constitutionalism, grounded in the Declaration of Independence and given institutional teeth through the federal constitution. The U.S. is the first truly universal nation. That's what makes it exceptional. Then there's, of course, a second basic question, which is, if that's what makes the U.S. exceptional, why should it assert control over communities globally? And the argument becomes, well, the U.S. doesn't actually have traditional imperial um, uh, holdings. Rather, what the U.S. is engaged in is facilitating self-government among the various states where it finds itself uh, interacting with local elites. And that it has this legitimate role to play, you know, a kind of tutelary role, precisely because of the particular cultural history in the U.S. That from the earliest days of colonization, fulfilled through the Constitution, that Americans have been able to develop a kind of cultural history in how you exercise self-government, how you construct um, constitutional practice. And the figure that best embodies this is Woodrow Wilson. And that's really key, because Wilson is consciously combining universalism and white supremacy. And this is one of the ways in which the settler logic and the logic of global primacy ended up getting interconnected. Wilson's argument is that the world is organized in a hierarchy that's developmental among distinct peoples, with Anglo-Saxons at the very top. And that that hierarchy suggests both a legitimate role to play by Americans in asserting control over the non-white world, but also what the world should look like. The problem of European empires, so <clears throat> Wilson would say, is that they imagined that ethno-racial identity could be combined in these plural arrangements, that you could have an Austro-Hungarian empire that links together, or an Ottoman empire that links together many different kinds of peoples. That's an impossibility. This is a kind of supercharged defense of demography drawn from the settler imagination. The only way you can have genuine self-government is if each state is bound to a very specific ethno-racial people. And that the meaning of American power is to create a world of self-governing states that are nation-states organized as distinct ethno-racial communities. And this becomes really essential 
especially by the time we get to World War II, to how Americans conceive of their project internationally. And he gets interconnected to the confrontation with Nazi Germany and then to the confrontation with the Soviet Union where the U.S. is different from its totalitarian foes because it's an open society. It's an open society grounded in principles of self-government that's attempting to replicate national self-determination everywhere. Its interests are the world's interests. The U.S. is the world in miniature. That means that American uh, security objectives are equivalent to whatever might be viewed as the security objectives domestically. If the U.S. says that something's in its national interest, it therefore, by definition, is in the global interest. All right. With that as a background, and now I'm just going to move more quickly, what does this mean for law in the, the kind of the era of American hegemony? And this is where I think critical race theory is actually really essential. Much of the foundation of the American legal imagination is based on universalism and formal equality. It's all about every state should be formally equal. And what the U.S. does is it promotes constitutionalism within the the internal dynamics of states abroad. And it also promotes constitutionalism as a principle at the international level. So the U.S. is attempting to replicate throughout the world state structures that combine capitalism with representative government and constitutional constraints, checks and balances. That's what it's projecting. And internationally, a system of multilateralism that's supposed to constrain any excess power. That seems like a universal project. And yet at the same time, the period of American dominance of the American century, and we saw Lumumba, who was assassinated in part through the facilitation of the CIA, is one marked by systematic and continuous violence. So how is it that both of those things are operative at the same time? The only way you can make sense of it is by recognizing the extent to which what the U.S. is projecting internationally is racialization and a systematic structure of, of, uh, of racism embedded in its account of, of universality. This is much like the conversations we have domestically about how can the U.S. both be a colorblind nation, post-racial, and organized around principles of Jim Crow and mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow. Um, and the way that this works in particular is by, under, is by like an account of why you're seeing instability. Now, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where is the instability coming from? It's coming from local populations actually committed to self-determination that read American intervention as neocolonialism, that are contesting the framework of ethnicity as the defining way of organizing collective life. And so this is pan-Arabism, pan-Africanism, the NIEO, efforts to actually break beyond the boundaries of the nation-state. For American policymakers, though, this instability is precisely because of the failures of local communities to live up to the ideals of market, constitutional structure, representative government, and requires continuous intervention. Moreover, continuous intervention precisely because there's this threatening other, the Soviet Union, who's essentially attempting to transform or usurp national independence movements to serve a a communist and totalitarian agenda. And all of this gets framed through a new version of Wilson's developmental account. That's, That's sort of modernism. That you see this instability because traditional societies have yet to fully develop, and that because they've yet to fully develop, you don't actually have adequate response, uh, responses to, to local pressures. Now, of course, the solution is what's causing the problem. Those two things are deeply interlinked, 
But that's not something that can be conceived of through the frame. Instead, the only way that American policymakers can think of like, well, what to make of the violence that it's generating is through an argument about hypocrisy. Well, you know, you're fighting these implacable foes, communist enemies. You have to use dirty hands. Maybe in Niebuhr's terms, you have to deal with a moral man but an immoral society. And so you're stuck by necessity in, in struggling with these tensions. Of course, the fact that you're struggling with these tensions highlight, justify American global power because they show that you're the most moral army on the face of the earth. You're so concerned about the violence that you engage with. And it generates a very specific form of exceptionalism, which is the idea that the U.S., rightly, because it has to maintain this whole order, needs to step in and out of law and constraint. It's the one state that might have to act unilaterally, might have to engage in assassination, might have to engage in various kinds of unholy practices because that's the only way you can safeguard the whole order. And what this highlights is that, again, the settler moment and the, the global primacy moment, the American century one, are linked together. They cannot be disentangled because the logics that develop the account of universalism are themselves grounded in a notion of white supremacy. Okay, so how is it that this ends up collapsing? First, I think it's really important to appreciate that for all of the problems, all of the ways in which American global primacy was ground necessarily in the perpetuation of intervention and violence, it had its own underlying legitimacy among a large number of elites, including elites in the global south. And that's because the confrontation with the Soviet Union imposes various kinds of constraints. It produces a need domestically, and this is the Cold War civil rights argument, to move toward greater forms of racial inclusion. It produces a need at the international level um, to, to defend principles of formal equality among states in the post-colonial world, to promote shared material prosperity through practices like the Marshall Plan and um, various other kinds of social welfareist uh, provisions. And it means that the U.S. is exercising power. There are real critiques that are coming from the left, but there's a kind of internal legitimacy that also exists. And then what ends up happening is that with the end of the Cold War, the U.S. effectively over the last 30 years has experienced defeat in victory. And by this I mean that the winning of the Cold War validates all of the extreme versions of national self-conception that had emerged from the, the first half of the 20th century and become established during, during that Cold War period. And it, again, supercharges them internationally. Uh, it emphasizes uh, austerity, neoliberal economic policies is something that the U.S. is going to project abroad because the U.S. has the only perceived model of economic growth and development. It justifies the need for unilateralism internationally because it's precisely the American exceptional role that, that won, the civil, uh, won excuse me, the Cold War. And by emphasizing unilateralism uh, against perceived new forms of instability, which are really the same forms of instability written into the order that the U.S. itself was so central in constructing, the U.S. quickly becomes a state that is defecting from the rules that it established as a basis for its own hegemony. And that produces two things by the time we get to the present, uh, globally and domestically. Domestically, it produces a world within which not only is neoliberalism something that's being projected abroad, increasingly it comes to define 
how economic practice operates at home. And so you have the hollowing out of all of the kind of foundations of social welfare as policies domestically. You have institutional paralysis because of hyperpolarization now that you no longer have a Soviet Union to rein in, um, especially uh, the, the right. And you have a return of explicit white solidarity in this context of paralysis and economic dislocation as a way of defining the basic terms of American life for large swaths of the white public, and again, especially housed in the Republican Party. And at the same time, internationally, the U.S. defection makes increasingly implausible the idea that you can actually organize peace and prosperity through multilateral means, and it also goes hand-in-hand with a similar return of whiteness as a defining category of self-identification. We see this through Brexit. We see this in the the right-wing populist politics that, that mark Europe. And all of it highlights the profound fragility of the American century, the contingent dynamics that generated it, and the extent to which each one of those three elements, the correlates of capitalism, representative institutions, and, and um, constitutionalism, are themselves coming apart at the seams in a way in which the very center, the U.S., no longer seems to have faith in its own imperial project, nor clarity about its direction. What that, what that ultimately leads to is a present in which the U.S. continues <clears throat> to assert profound forms of raw power. So the U.S. maintains a kind of hegemonic status when it comes to sheer raw power. But without any of the legitimating discourses that marked the mid part of the 20th century. And without any clarity about what the function of that power is supposed to actually serve. And it produces a present... <clears throat> where one can imagine truly dystopian outcomes, especially against the backdrop of climate change and ecological disaster, where you have raw American power vying with managed authoritarianism in a world marked by just pure realpolitik and violence. But it also raises the possibility of a kind of openness that the world has not seen in a half century toward alternative forms of solidarity, political organization, and movement politics. And here's where I'm going to end. This moment, the kind of breakdown of the American imperial frame, the period essentially increasingly after the sureties of the U.S. century, is one in which we see the revival of the political constituencies and movements that gave birth in various ways to CRT and TWAIL. So if we go back to CRT and TWAIL, that these are academic formations that emerge effectively after the collapse of black uh, black radical politics in the 60s and 70s in various ways, and the the third world kind of internationalist agenda of anti-colonialism and genuine substantive, not just formal independence. And it's those intellectual traditions that then provide us a capacity to make sense of the present within which we live. But interestingly, now, in the the context of those intellectual traditions, we see the re-emergence of the black radical tradition politically as something that's viable domestically, and third world internationalism and transnational solidarity as something that we see as viable on the global stage. And how how is it that it's present? With black radicalism, you can think of Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, and in particular, 
uh, you know, the, it's already been uh, noted, um, discussions of, of from uh, Ferguson to Gaza, um, the way in which the vision statement for the movement of black lives very consciously is thinking of solidarity as not bound to national identity, that understands solidarity as organized between those that share the same kind of experience of subordination and structural oppression wherever they live in ways that can test the idea that you share the same interests with people that you just have like a, a bare nationality with and so requires an internationalism that can make sense of racial capitalism domestically. So this is a, a politics that's real and it's part of our last few years. And <clears throat> internationally we see the revival of a kind of transnational vision that linked various Arab publics on the ground uh, <clears throat> during the so-called Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring in 2011, but we see persist from uh, you know, Chile to Hong Kong to Lebanon to Sudan to Algeria and elsewhere. And it produces a moment of, I think, genuine hopefulness in the sense that we live during times in which the ideological commitments to internationalism that emerge through these various traditions at home and abroad, if not dominant, are certainly ascendant. But with a very particular problem, which is the problem of institutionalization. The thing that defined the, the 60s, 70s moment, that last time where we had a linkage directly politically between black radicalism and third world internationalism, was one in which the politics was built around anti-colonial state-based resistance. And that was organized through maintaining alliances between groups like the Panthers and national liberation organizations that existed in, could be the ANC in South Africa, the PLO in Palestine. And what defined these relationships is that the various institutions, including the Panthers, could claim that they had constituencies. They actually represented real publics. And that because they could claim that they had constituencies, you could make alliances among these different entities in ways that would suggest changes to statecraft. Now, there were all sorts of problems about what ends up happening, including the way in which post-colonial statecraft becomes defined by a kind of authoritarian imagination that we, we can get into. <clears throat> but one of the things that's happened in the last half century is that the capacity of institutions as intermediary forces to represent transnational um, um, and solidaristic attachments among different groups you know, has, has largely collapsed. The PA is not the PLO. And what that means is that you end up having today kind of free-floating activists, intellectuals that are seeking to find spaces in which to be able to speak in transnational and solidaristic terms, but without any clarity about who they themselves represent and with the tendency to fall back into precisely the kinds of defenses of state sovereignty that were critiqued before. Like maybe it's just easier to say that Assad represents the Syrian people than to figure out who in fact represents the Syrian people in the context of a, a profoundly contested conflict. And that suggests that there is both a profound opening today that needs to be taken advantage of, but a real problem, which is you have the emergence of popular, grassroots, 
political connections organized around the principles and themes that marked past moments of kind of utopian thinking and emancipatory possibility, but without the institutional frameworks that can give them tangible control over statecraft um, at the nation-state level and to intervene at the international level beyond, let's say, the generations of of third-world kind of lawyers of which I myself am also a part. And that requires a very specific kind of conceptual thinking against the backdrop of the, the story, let's say the more dystopian story about raw American power, managed authoritarianism, and violence itself unconstrained from legitimacy. So I'll stop there. Great to be here and uh, a tough act to follow for, um, and re- in responding to um, Aziz's uh, riveting talk. Um, as Aziz mentioned, he didn't have a written paper but was going to speak from notes. And while I am full of admiration for Aziz's sort of youthful verbal athleticism in keeping uh, perfect timing, uh, being an old fart, I need my crutches to ensure I keep within the time allotted to me. Um, so in sort of stodgy and old-fashioned form, I wrote part of my paper, um, a part of my response to a paper that was still in the future. So these remarks are both the performance of the future anterior, uh, while, as you will see, an argument for thinking this juncture of CRT and TWAIL in the future anterior. Um, so once again, many thanks to Aziz for this wonderful talk. Uh, there is so much to illuminate and clarify this historical moment, our present condition in the world, while offering such a sharp and cogent articulation of the stakes of um, critical race theory and twill in navigating these treacherous times. What I want to say is more in the vein of a supplement, um, a supplement from the South, if you will. Um, Aziz spoke eloquently about the unraveling of the American imperial project liberal humanitarianism's loss of legitimacy and the opportunities that are opened up by these developments um, to sort of radical alternative futures. Um, in that vein, one friendly supplement um, to the story that Aziz tells is that um, we need to tell more histories of American empire from a perspective outside America's shows. So not only the U.S. in the Philippines in terms of how it reflects a projection of American interests, but also in terms of the Philippines' domestic dynamics. This is all complementary, I think, to what Aziz was saying, uh, but it just shifts us um, to a different standpoint, to looking at the elephant so differently. Um, In other words, in addition to looking at the elephant from the perspective of American law globally in its imperial role, um, not only in its projection of American interests through its military or tutelary role or otherwise, but we need to also see what the elephant looks like from other perspectives. And I think one dimension of the CRT-12 synergy is it allows us to tell the story of American empire from the perspectives of legal and political struggles elsewhere. For instance, the story of anti-terror laws, laws targeting minority populations, and the criminalizing of dissent in Myanmar, Egypt, and Turkey is a story about American empire, but it's also a story about all of those countries. The story of personal debt and change in financial regulation in Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Nicaragua, these are all stories about American empire, but they're also stories that need to be grounded in in those countries. The story of privatization of water and struggles of the corporatization of public utilities in Nigeria, Bolivia, and South Africa 
is a story about the American empire, but it's also a story about what's happening um, in those countries. The story of laws advancing a carceral feminist vision in Colombia, India, and Rwanda is a story about the American empire, but it's also a story about what's happening in those countries. This then is a research agenda that tells the history of the American empire in ways that traces um, how empire travels, is challenged and reproduced through, to sort of quote Tommy Baba's old phrase, mimicry and mimesis, um, but perhaps then actually becomes something that is distinct from and complicates the histories we tell about American empire in ways that are attentive to sort of gaps, conflicts, and ambiguities. Had to throw in a bit of CLS there. Um, this part of the story of the fragility of American empire that Aziz highlighted. Um, as suggested by sort of the larger arc of Aziz's story about the relationship, but what he refers to as a settler empire on the one hand, and American global primacy on the other, these different legal geographies of domestic law in contexts that range from Sri Lanka to Lebanon, Egypt to Colombia, are not sequel, sequential, contingent, or supplementary to American empire, but fundamentally implicated with it, as he argued. Um, but so are the gaps and contradictions in the fabric of American empire. And I guess that's partly what I was, what that supplement is about. It's about being attentive to those gaps and contradictions and the fact that American empire as um, as huge and terrible and awful and um, as sweeping as it is, is not um, something that is not without um, without those um, those gaps and contradictions. Um, so, even more global history of American empire and its legal architecture is one supplement. Um, another supplement in the register of the future interior is a story about the future that is not anchored primarily in American empire, although of course that is part of the story. For those who once subscribed to the possibilities of cosmopolitan humanism, um, this is a moment after faith. However, how, how did those who look for those who had no faith, uh, how did those things look to those who had no faith to begin with? Some who participated in the world of American empire and international law as it was received, not because they believed in the promise of liberalism, but because people realized, to paraphrase Marx, that even if you want change, you don't necessarily make change in the conditions of your own choosing. Here, as um, Siba, Grobugi, and, and many others remind us, people elsewhere have always had their own visions of worlding and world order, and even when they are in the shadow of empire, we need to work our way to the light filtering in between these shadows to see and work with knowledge systems and meanings that can inflect um, and illuminate alternative futures differently. If we don't do that, if we stay with the weight of colonial and racial oppression, we unwittingly risk reproducing what has been referred to as epistemicide, the destruction of alternative knowledges and meanings through which we make um, sense of the world and imagine alternative worlds. From that perspective, the future of the world after the decline of American empire may not be about only about the ashes of liberal uh, humanitarianism, although it is that too, of course, but also the ashes of received notions of modernity and development and electoral democracy. Indeed, the larger... Um, the larger post-World War II visions of the future, I think there's a resonance here um, in what Michael was talking about this morning uh, in terms of decentering received approaches to challenging Eurocentricism that don't then reinscribe Eurocentricism. The task here is what Wayne Yang and others have described um, in the context of settler colonialism and the heuristic of settler native slave um, as theorizing in the break. Um, this is what is being activated by those protesting in the streets of Delhi and Hong Kong, Lebanon and Chile, Iraq and Paris. These protests sometimes, in Iraq for instance, explicitly reference American empire, but they also about a range of other structural crises and political promises 
local, regional, and global. They're also about the nested temporalities of these crises, the immediacy of current government policies in this context, the longer time frame of the world order that was the legacy of the last century, and the even longer time frame of the world order that was the legacies of slavery and colonialism, and the even larger epochal temporalities of the Anthropocene and the ravages of climate change. I don't want to romanticize this, but to some extent, the alternative knowledges that are getting activated here come out of the shadows, not because of optimism, but because of despair. Indeed, some of these struggles have emerged precisely in the interstices of the loss of faith, not just in collective futures, but in the future as such. If there's no promised future to lose, then we might as well die with dignity rather than be conscripted into our annihilation in slow violence. Protesters in Cairo at the end of last year were no longer brought out by the heady optimism, for instance, of Tahir Square in 2011, but in the sense that there is a war against them even if they don't come to the streets. If there's no safe space, why not at least fight for the dignity of choosing risk? A final supplement I want to add to Aziz's story is to continue to work, uh, is continue work that develops uh, genealogies of the categories of race and colonialism. And there's been some discussion of this already this morning in ways that speak to their dynamic and unstable histories. As the morning panel spoke to somewhat, there is a way in which um, both race and colonialism, or race and the third world, often mobilized, even in critique, even in our own work as Twail and CRT scholars, in ways that are rendered rigid and reified and understood in binaries of the West and the rest, or whiteness and the other, stable, dichotomized categories recognizable across place and time. Here, even as we, as um, legal scholars, we explore the synergies of CRT and TWAIL, I think we can also learn from complementary intellectual traditions of racial capitalism, world systems theory, and subaltern studies in developing a more fluid historical and systemic understanding of both race and colonization, traditions that have their greatest presence in disciplines other than law. For instance, as Robin Kelly often reminds us in Black Marxism, Cedric Robinson argues that racialization within Europe was very much a colonial process, one involving invasion, settlement, expropriation, and racial hierarchy. Indeed, again, as Michael reminded us this morning, whiteness travels in the global south in ways that cannot be reduced to bodies of and systems seen as inheritors of Euro-American empire. Or as Shereen's last comment at the end of the last session indicated, we see whiteness re-emerging in Modi's vision in India, or we may add in the Netanyahu Kushner plan in Israel and Palestine. In this moment when white supremacy, white supremacy is both in a moment of prominent revival, but also in a moment of deep crisis, how can we supplement a story of race and racial capitalism that includes but is not bracketed within the received parameters of the American story of race? Sukarno, in his opening address to Bandung, refers to the Bandung Conference as the largest meeting of people of color in the world, at least in terms of the nations represented, in terms of both formal and informal representatives that were present. But to me, what captures the conjuncture and challenge here is Paul Robeson at the Bandung Conference. Robeson was keen to attend alongside Richard Wright and others, but the U.S. State Department impounded Paul Robeson's passport because he was under investigation at the time by the House Committee of Un-American Affairs linking Robeson and the ghosts of Bolshevism and the Russians. But notwithstanding Moscow, Robeson anchors his un-Americanness in the global south. Here is, and this is what is of interest to me. Um, 
how he focuses not in his in his intervention here not in terms of moscow and russia but in bandung indonesia and he phones into the bandung conference and sings old man river to the conference delegates this is both a displacement of american empire and a challenge to it it complicates the binaries of empire making meanings and connections that scrambled empire's geography in ways that are barely audible but still that phone call singing through the static to be heard in the break that wired absence presence of paul robson in bandung at once barely audible and yet with loud resonance beyond the halls of bandung in mapping those alternative geographies the intimacy as lisa lau says the intimacy of four continents paul robson singing old man river through the static speaks to this conjuncture of crt and twail in the junctures and routes through which the mississippi river flows into the indian ocean and maybe that alternative provocative geography is the supplement to aziz atwari's framing of the possibilities of solidarity as he ended with that is emerging from the rise and fall of american empire as we sit on the eve of the alternative futures of the world after american empire but also a moment that is the eve of the alternative futures of crt and 12 thank you You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.